The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week, we'll hear Caroline's interview with Allergan CEO Brent Saunders. She sat down with the chief executive for a wide-ranging conversation as part of our CEO Spotlight series. Saunders has been at the helm of the global pharmaceutical company since 2014. He built up Allergan over a series of acquisitions. Now he's closing in on the company's $63 billion sale to pharma giant AbbVie. They took a look back at his unusual professional path, and he told Caroline why taking a pay cut was the best career decision he's ever made. And so I thought this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to be mentored by someone of, of, of this caliber. It took a huge pay cut huge pay cut. They also talked about the balancing act he manages as CEO between the demand for breakthrough therapies and maintaining steady growth, as well as why those big name drugs keep driving consolidation in the pharmaceutical market. The industry tends to push towards blockbusters. Uh, the financial community, the investors, a lot of stakeholders love this concept of a blockbuster. But the reality is there's so few and far between. Blockbusters really are like hit movies. One happens a year in the whole industry. Caroline started by asking Brent Saunders about his unlikely path from PwC partner to pharmaceutical CEO. Well, a bit unconventional, for sure. Um, so I started as a legal compliance guy. I started working in hospitals and health systems, um, really at the beginning of healthcare compliance, when, when a lot of the fraud and abuse and mm. government investigations were starting uh, in the early 90s in healthcare. And so I was at the forefront of that. And I turned that into a consulting practice at Pricewaterhouse Consulting and became a partner and leader in that practice. And ultimately uh, started working with a company, Shearing Plow in New Jersey. Um, they brought in a new CEO, Fred Hassan, and it was a huge compliance turnaround story. Hmm. And so he asked me to come and join him as his chief compliance officer, a job I did not want. Um, <laughs> Why <but> not? <laughs> I, had no interest in being a, a chief compliance officer. I had a wonderful career at a wonderful organization like Pricewaterhouse. I was a partner, a young partner, doing incredibly well. And I liked the work I was doing. Mm. Um, but ultimately, the thing that he said that, that convinced me to come is he said, look, I don't know what your future is, but come. I will mentor you. I'll teach you everything I know. And, and people who know Fred Hassan knows, know he's a legend. <laughs> uh, and so I thought this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be mentored by someone of, of, of this caliber. It took a huge pay cut huge pay cut to go work wow. for him. And I did everything he wanted for about eight years. Anything he asked me to do, I did. <laughs> Anywhere he asked me to go, I went. Um, and ultimately rose up to the ranks of, of president of the company. And uh, when that ended, became CEO of Bausch & Lomb. Merck acquired Shering Plow, went to Bausch & Lomb, which was a turnaround as well. Um, and we took that private with a private equity group and ultimately sold it to Valiant Bausch, which is now Bausch Health. Um, and uh, then 
took on the journey that I'm doing now for the last uh, several years. And so the lessons, the mentoring that he gave you, yeah. what do you think you've put into practice then in building what is now known as Allegan? Yeah, so he taught me a lot. Um, and probably we could talk about that for the entire interview because I learned so much from him. But I think the key lessons that, that he taught me were, one in business was to be the best at what you do. Um, and that's a large part of the Allergan strategy, to be in therapeutic areas where we can be the number one company in that area, both for innovation as well as commercial and, and, and R&D technology and skills. And then two, humility, to, to really lead your people with humility, to lead your company with humility, uh, to be open-minded, to hire the best people around you, not fear making mistakes, but, but you know, continue to try things and push the boundaries. And, he was just a wonderful mentor, and I still learn from him. I still stay in touch with him. That's so nice to hear. So you, the focus was being number one. How did you go about then bringing together the parts that became Allegan? Because it's sort of born of M&A and then disposals. How did you think about which areas were of strategic importance? Yeah, it was, it was not easy, and, and it took about $220 billion worth of transactions to to carve into <laughs> both buy and sell, but yes, wow. about $220 billion of transactions to, to put together um, what is today Allergan. And the idea was to find therapeutic areas where we could uh, be a leader and, and be a bit contrarian about it. Most of the pharmaceutical industry today is pouring into oncology, which is fantastic for mm. patients. They're looking at rare diseases, which is fantastic for patients. Um, but we wanted to be in areas that, that perhaps were a bit left behind by the big pharmaceutical companies. So one was medical aesthetics. We liked also because it was a cash pay business. One was eye care, um, which is really a duopoly type of situation. Um, one was mental health and, and diseases of the brain, um, which is a very difficult area but needs so much innovation. And last was GI diseases or diseases of the uh, gastrointestinal tract. Mm. And so those are the four areas we focus on. We, we do have leadership positions in three out of the four. Uh, and we've done very well in terms of building innovation and pipeline and commercial capabilities all over the world in those four areas. Talk about pipeline. Talk about the need, the seeming need for blockbusters. This seems to be what the pharma industry analysts, investors are completely focused upon. And this is why we're seeing so much consolidation in the market. But how do you think about it? How do you ensure that you've got the pipeline there to woo potential buyers, sellers, and investors. Right. Well, it starts with the idea that, look, the biopharmaceutical industry is all about innovation, right? At the end of the day, the lifeblood of our industry is discovering new medicines and treatments for unmet medical need. From there, you're right. I think the, the industry tends to push towards blockbusters. Uh, the financial community, the investors, a lot of stakeholders love this concept of a blockbuster. But the reality is there's so few and far between. Blockbusters really are like, you know, hit movies. One happens a year in the whole industry, right? And so um, what, what our strategy was, and I think that has worked well with us, was to have therapeutic focus and depth and breadth. And so what I mean by that is we absolutely want the blockbusters at Allergan. We'd love to find a blockbuster cure for an unmet need somewhere in one of those four therapeutic areas. But we also know doing that is risky and difficult. Mm. And so take eye care, for example. We'd rather have a full spectrum of eye care um, treatments or pharmaceuticals or even devices or implants so that when we call on that ophthalmologist, that eye surgeon, we can have a full menu of solutions for their patients. 
And if one of those ultimately becomes a blockbuster, that's great. But if you think about it that way, the next new drug you put in your system or put into the, the infrastructure of that eye care business is incrementally less expensive to promote and develop and everything else because you have so much core expertise already to leverage. And most other pharma companies tend to let the science dictate where they're going. Yeah. So they could be a oncology company, but then they discover something, let's say, for migraine, and all of a sudden they're a migraine company the next day, and they have to build that entire capability, both commercially and medical affairs and education and training and R&D. We wanted to really stay focused on things that we knew well and arguably could be the best in the world at you speak very much of we, the team mentality. How do you ensure that the talent are entirely aligned with perhaps not needing to pursue that one-hit wonder, but wanting to have this full scope of, of offerings? Yeah, so I, I think that, frankly, is the most important job of a CEO, is to make sure that you have the best people in your company to do what you're trying to, to accomplish. And that means hiring people that are smarter and better than you are. And, and so that's where that humility from Les and from Fred comes in. To hire people smarter than you, you have to, to, to have humility. You also have to be secure that, that that's a good thing for the entire organization. So I spent a lot of time trying to make sure that not only the direct hiring decisions I'm involved in, which are few and far between, I don't hire that many people who work directly for me, but with approximately 18,000, 19,000 people working at Allergan, we do hire a lot of people, several thousand every year. Mm -hmm. The key is to make sure that our team knows, our managers and our hiring managers know that we need to hire not just diverse talent, but we also have to hire the best talent and that we should never compromise. We should always make that hiring decision one of the most important decisions you make as a manager inside of Allergan. And therefore, that commitment to people and that focus on people must have been heavy in your mind when you decide to be bored as a company. Yep. And so how, how do you see the fit with and, and how you work to help them and, and equally them help you. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think the fit of Allergan and Avi, which should close in the first quarter next year, um, is a very strong strategic logic. They have a, an amazing company. We have some overlap in therapeutic focus, particularly in GI diseases, which we now will have an opportunity to be best in the world as a combined company. Um, but the six or seven therapeutic areas that they're going to focus on as a combined company, they really have leadership. Um, I think there's a, just an incredible opportunity to diversify the company because now they're going to have a cash pay business like in medical aesthetics. They're going to be in eye care um, versus the big blockbuster they have in Humira. Mm. Um, and then second and probably most importantly, they're going to create scale in R&D. They're going to have an R&D organization that's going to spend several billion dollars a year in R&D. And as I said earlier, innovation and R&D is the lifeblood of this industry. Unfortunately, um, the, the bets that you have to make to be successful are becoming more expensive and riskier. Mm. The good news is the science is exploding. And so the things that we thought were untreatable or uncurable just a couple years ago, we now have real opportunity to go after. So it's, 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 a, it's a kind of a tale of two different stories, but I think size will matter in R&D and having the ability to take these, these really expensive but important bets are going to be really um, uh, important to the strategy of the combined company. How have you been able, as you steer Allegan still as a standalone, been able to ensure that you've got the focus on R&D, perhaps without the huge deep pockets that you will eventually be able to have? Right. How have you been able to be innovative in a, in a sort of clever way? Yeah, so one of the things that, that we've done is, is we kind of figured out that we may not be the best innovators, meaning we big 
biopharmaceutical companies. In fact, the data strongly supports that most innovation comes from smaller companies, and then the development of that innovation, which is very expensive, is done by big pharmaceutical companies like Allergan. And so we created a kind of an open science model where we were very open-minded that we weren't the smartest and best and that there was an ecosystem of innovation that we should support and tap into. And so we have spent several billion dollars investing in that ecosystem in the four therapeutic areas we've done. And we've done dozens and dozens of technology deals to bring those technologies in to Allergan so we can develop them. And so even today we have three drugs pending approval at the FDA. All three were licensed in at very different stages, some very early, some mid-stage. But we've done all the development, which is very expensive um, and requires a lot of capability uh, and will bring really, hopefully, amazing new treatments for, to patients. Amazing new treatments under the form of a combined company by Q1, if the regulatory approvals go as they should. How is the environment for antitrust for getting big, brutal, deals done at the moment, having done so much M&A and so right. many $220 billion of right. acquisitions and disposals, is it getting harder? Is it... Well, I think it's, I, I'm not sure it's getting harder. I think it's always been done seriously. You know, the U.S. government and governments around the world really do look at overlap um, very uh, specifically. Um, and in this case, we have very minor overlap, but we are prepared to divest those overlaps. There's no there's no debating it. We just figure the best way to deal with it is to divest it pre-close. Um, and so we're in the process of doing that, and that should give us a pretty clear pathway. And you get the right price, even when you're having to do it ahead of the game? Um, you know, you, you sometimes wonder whether you can get the best price doing it that way. But I think in this case, the assets are relatively small relative to the the combined value of the company. We, are, we have a very robust process, and fortunately, we have several bidders for each of the two assets, so okay. I think we're going to be okay. Uh, but you're never done till you're done. I've learned that by doing all these deals, that, that you, you never declare victory till it's signed and, and sealed and delivered. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Caroline also spoke with Brent Saunders about Allergan's most valuable and recognizable brand, Botox. The prescription injections became a household name for their cosmetic use, fighting wrinkles. But they also have some unlikely medical uses. One of the biggest uses is for migraine, for chronic migraine, but it's also used for spasticity and movement disorders and a variety of other conditions. And it's being studied for uh, quite a few more therapeutic conditions. So it's, it's a really wonderful, almost miracle drug. Caroline began by asking the Allergan CEO whether that overwhelming name brand recognition can be both a blessing and a curse and whether their best product can also be perhaps a bit of a distraction. It is, it is, and it's our largest product. And, and the secret that most people don't realize is that we sell slightly more for therapeutic use than we do for cosmetic huh. application. So um, how is it used for therapeutic use? So one of the biggest uses is for migraine, for chronic migraine, but it's also used for spasticity and movement disorders and a variety of other conditions. And it's being studied for uh, quite a few more therapeutic conditions. So it's, it's mm. a really wonderful, almost miracle drug. 
That being said, I like that they cost, in many ways, the, the, the Botox maker because it's free promotion of our brand, Botox. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, I believe, the strongest brand in the pharmaceutical industry today, and that's true globally. It's an eponym for the procedure. It's ubiquitous. Um, and so that's that's part of our strategy of why we do so well in medical stacks is we have some of the best and strongest brands. What's so amazing is also how little of it you make. Yes. Tell that story of just you, you think this is a basically one of the most valuable products out there in the world, right? Right. Well, when it gets to the patient, it is so highly diluted, and so we make just a small amount, you know, perhaps about a gram or, or so of raw material, and then it's actually diluted into the uh, into the vials at, you know, measurements of one hundredth of a percent of one milliliter. I mean, it's such a small amount that's then reconstituted with saline. So it is massively diluted and, and requires very little active drug. And as you know, um, you know, that's something that's so highly regulated because of the, the other uses. But, but, you know, we have sold over 100 million vials of, of Botox around the world. Um, and uh, the safety is, is pretty, pretty exact, almost exactly as you would read on the label. It's, it's been very predictable. Talk to us about around the world. How do the cultures change in the desire to be you know, getting rid of fine lines or using these sort of aesthetic ways and means of the products that you're building because it's not only, of course, Botox, but medical aesthetics in general. How are they adopted yeah. in different cultures? Yeah, well, first I would tell you the medical aesthetic market around the world is booming. Um, and in fact, we believe it will double over the next several years. So really strong growth rates of virtually every country everywhere in the world. And that's because I think the the, the social media, perhaps, mm. um, opinions and attitudes towards um, intervention uh, with medical aesthetic products, whether it be Botox or Juvederm or any of the other things that we make, um, is widely acceptable, where just several years ago, people did it um, much more quietly. They didn't want people to know they were doing it. Mm. And today, they're happy to film it for their Instagram account <laughs> or their Facebook account or whatever it may be and post it that they had the procedure done. And so it really has become mainstream and, and, and accepted. Also, people are doing it younger, um, and it's also crossing into different genders. So males are starting to participate, um, although a small part of the market today, they are starting to more, become more meaningfully um, uh, involved in this segment. So if every dimension of this market is, is growth. Different parts of the world, different. Mm-hmm. Um, China, right yeah. yeah, so for example, China, um, has amazing growth faster than the United States. Um, you know, I think demographics help. They're very strong middle class there. But also this desire to um, look more professional, to perhaps even change the shape of your face um, is, is part of, is, is acceptable in their culture. On the other hand, you go to a place like Japan, not growing as fast because it's less acceptable, although it's changing, to change the shape of your face. Mm. Or go to a market like Korea where where probably the highest use per capita. Really? Um, and just because the, the society there is so focused on beauty and aesthetic um, as well. So very different, but that's true in the United States. You know, mm-hmm. California and New York City are, are obviously um, very uh, big markets for us. You go to the middle of the country, growing very nicely, but off a smaller base. It's interesting that you have this focus on medical aesthetics and at the same time on mental health. and. Do you? F- how do you personally feel about the fact that younger and younger people are using it, and that perhaps this is social media driven in some way? Yeah, I, I'm 
concerned about it. And in fact, I've published my own thoughts in a blog, and, a, and, a, and I speak about it quite regularly. I don't believe um, minors or uh, children under the age of 18 should be using medical aesthetic uh, products unless their parents consent to it or because they have a real need. For example, if someone was scarred by a dog bite on their face or, or you know, they were being picked on for some deformity on their face or, or needed plastic surgery to, to feel like they fit in better. But those are the exceptions. I really do believe people should wait till their bodies have evolved, their, their, their mental um, state has matured um, to a point where they can, they can make that decision um, with a little bit more experience, and I really do believe that's important. Uh, and, and I think most of the community believes that. Most mm. of the, the injectors and physicians and medical professionals have been following that lead as well. Um, but that being said, you know, I, I also have daughters, and, and so I watch very carefully. And, you know, we, we talk about it very openly, so I think that's part of how um, people need to approach it and, and look at the end of the day if it makes you feel better about yourself and it improves your self-esteem and your and your ability to uh, function both perhaps professionally as well as socially then all the power to you you should feel good about yourself and maybe that doesn't require anything maybe that's just going to the gym or maybe that's going for a long walk or having a great friend to talk with a friend it doesn't matter what it is but I think that's where the mental health intersection comes together is mm -hmm is that people do need to do things that make them feel good about themselves so that they can perhaps approach their day with a, a more positive attitude. And mental health is actually something deep-rooted within the company in terms of the business focus that you have, but also deep-rooted in you as something that you're passionate about, really yeah, blogging about. Yeah, I mean, one of my really most, most important issues that I focus on and something I'm really passionate about is, is trying to end the stigma around mental health. Um, and I believe that we're, we're, we are approaching epidemic levels of, of mental health um, uh, crisis in this country. Um, more young people are suffering from, from uh, mental health conditions. And that stigma, I think, um, that inability to ask for help or, or be more open about needing help is causing a lack of treatment. And therefore, we're seeing suicide rates and other issues really increase to unacceptable levels. And so... You know, I always say to people, if, if your pancreas isn't working, you're not going to will it to work again. You're going to go get insulin. You're going to go get treated. If your brain isn't producing the right chemical, maybe serotonin or GABA or, or norepinephrine, you're not going to will that to be better. You need intervention. You need to talk to a professional and look for a way to get that back on track. Mm. That doesn't mean therapy isn't important. It is. But it has to be done in consultation with, with um, help from a medical professional. And so I think what happens is people, everybody gets depressed. And so when they think of depression, they say, well, I had that last week. But that's not clinical depression. Yeah. And so people, think, I believe, I, they stigmatize it because they believe they've gone through it. But they've never truly experienced clinical depression. And that's a very different uh, situation than when someone is just situationally depressed. And so we need to get people to, to talk about their anxiety, their depression, their struggles, so that they can seek, seek help and, and be treated appropriately. And corporate leaders can do that. And certainly there's been CEOs of top banks in the UK that I know have taken time out because of mental unwell and come back and led Absolutely. in a position of strength after that. How much do you think corporates can lead with this? How much do you speak to corporate leaders about this? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. There's no different 
to having an issue with mental health and having a bout with cancer and taking some time off and coming back. We've seen some wonderful CEOs. Jamie Dimon left for a little bit for, for a cancer uh, treatment and came back to J.P. Morgan stronger mm -hmm. than ever. Um, so why can't a CEO leave to deal with a mental health issue? Or a, We've now had some, some uh, uh, celebrities uh, mm -hmm. talk about their mental health status and their conditions um, very openly, and I think it should become more acceptable that, that people can do that. It's interesting that clearly this is something you speak very passionately about. What about also the way you think about the stakeholders you have? We know from the Business Roundtable it's not just about investors, it's about employees, it's about those that are outside of society at large. You have customers and you have employees. Sure. How have you thought about the responsibility you have to customers primarily as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you have to think of all the constituents and balance, right? Obviously, we, we, we are run for the benefit of our shareholders, and, and the profits that we generate allow us to do the things to support other parts of our constituent base. And so clearly, we need to create great places to work for our employees. We need to create a great environment for our employees. For our customers, we have to support them across the board, and so we've been very committed. I, in fact, I, I authored a, a document called Our Social Contract, and one of the tenants that gets a lot of uh, attention is my commitment to keeping prices low. Mm. But the, there were three other pieces to that, and one was to invest in innovation and education for our, our customers. When you think about our customers, mainly physicians or medical professionals, what do they want? They need training and education, and they want new innovative products to treat their patients. And so we need to, to, to make sure that we are focused on both. And we'll train you know, upwards of 70, 80,000 um, healthcare professionals this year through our various training programs, uh, as just one example. You've not been isolated. You've had experience of investors frustration in past. I have over and, the years, yes, many times. And shareholder value and the like. How have you, when you write about keeping prices fair, how do you square that with them? And, and how do you see others in the pharmaceutical arena doing it? Because all of this was sort of stirred by the fact that certain players in the pharmaceuticals arena were really doing a disservice in terms of their right. pricing. Yeah, so when I did that um, a few years ago, it was a bit controversial. We were the first pharmaceutical company to make a pledge uh, not to, to try to keep our price increases in or around the, 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 the cost of inflation. In fact, we've been lower than the cost of inflation mm -hmm. for, the, for the last few years. Um, and that was a big deal at the time. It got a lot of attention. Um, I think that now maybe 10 or 11 companies have adopted the same thing. I would have loved to see the entire industry do it. But I think what I would say to investors, and they were a bit skeptical of it when, when I did it, was that, you don't want to invest in a biopharmaceutical company that's only profitable because it's taking price increases. One, that's not a sign of a healthy business. And two, that can't go on forever. And so for a long-term investor, what do you want from us? You want us to have a pipeline to innovate, to be commercially strong, and to be successful. And the best way to do that is not to rely on price increases, but rather to rely on the core of what we do at this business is create new medicines and cures for unmet need. And that's a healthy business. And if we can do that, it doesn't matter if we take price increases or not. Mm. That's how we're going to grow our business. And we've been, I think, uh, reasonably successful. There's been some setbacks. There's been some great um, uh, wins. But, but uh, all in all, we've been growing the business through our core business through the entire time I've been CEO. How do you, when you have set off on 
M&A discussions, manage to balance and think about how this is going to reward investors, employees, all the various stakeholders? Yeah, no, I think about that a lot. Um, and I always come at every deal, big or small, um, as what is the strategic logic for this deal, first and foremost. I don't care what the numbers say. I don't care if it's, if it's highly accretive. Um, I want to understand the strategic logic, because if the strategic logic is sound, then we can figure out those things. If those things don't work, we won't do the deal. But there's no circumstance where there's a strong financial fit but no strategic fit that I would do it. Mm. And so for me, the, the, the ability to find things that make sense, that make us a stronger company, that will make us a better company, where one plus one is something more than two uh, strategically is, is the end-all, be-all of M&A. And then you have to be disciplined to, to your numbers and the profitability or the creation of the deal. You ha it's talked about how you didn't have the most obvious route to becoming a chief executive. Certainly, right. perhaps right. didn't want to have the compliance role that led you that way. How do you like being a CEO now? And is, is it sort of, how do you find the balancing act? Yeah, I, I love my job. I mean, I, I, there hasn't been a day, uh, and I've been a CEO for about 11 years now, there hasn't been a day in those 11 years where I've woken up in the morning and said, oh, God, I have to go to work today. I, right. I literally jump out of bed excited for the day, and, and maybe that makes me odd. But uh, I love being a CEO. I love working with the teams that I've, I've had the privilege of being involved with over the years. And frankly, I just love healthcare. I love the idea that, uh, as strange as it may be, that we come to work every day trying to solve a problem in society. Um, whether we get credit for that or whether people like what we do, um, I will tell you that Everyone at Allergan who comes to work every day is trying to do good in the world. Um, yes, we're trying to make a profit. Yes, we're trying to do it successfully for our investors, but we're trying to do good in the world. And that's a pretty special thing. There's very few careers where you can do the types of things that we do and be involved in the sophisticated science and big M&A deals and a lot of strategic discussions, but, but ultimately trying to, to help people live their lives um, better or more, be more healthy is, is really pretty, pretty neat. And is that how you keep your workforce focused and not looking at the news, the media, the share price when you are in these sorts of situations? Yeah, I don't spend, you know, I'm not a day-to-day -day look at the share price kind of CEO in large part because I'm always a buyer, not a seller. I've, I'm not sold any stock as long as I've been a CEO. Um, and so, you know, I'm not looking to cash out. I'm, I'm a long-term uh, holder of the stock. Do you think uh, you have to be to be a CEO? I think you should be. Um, mm. I find it surprising when I see a lot of CEOs selling their, their stock. Now, some people have kids to put in college or yeah. they, so every, I don't want to be judgmental, but I do think all in all, the, the bias should be towards holding, um, not being a seller. In fact, I've bought in the open market many years. Mm. Um, in fact, almost every year I've been a CEO on top of what, what uh, I get as part of my compensation. And so I'm a big believer you have to align yourself with the shareholders, at least the long-term shareholders. Um, you know, look, I think that at, at the end of the day, you have to do what you believe is right. Um, you have to align yourself towards um, your constituents, and that's not just your shareholders, it's your customers, your patients, your communities, your employees, um, and, and bring your best every day. What about you next? Of course, there's a board, yeah. board seat waiting for the combined Avi Allegan. But is yeah. are you looking at other parts of the medical industry with, with interest? So the only thing I would, I would tell you um, is I'm absolutely going to keep working. Um, I love to work. It's just something I, I have a passion for. But I spend very virtually no time thinking beyond 
that I do plan to work. Um, <laughs> I'm a big believer that you have to finish what you started. Um, this deal isn't complete till it's complete. And I think I have a I have a responsibility to our employees to show up every day and 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 not be distracted about daydreaming about the future. And then also importantly, I have a responsibility to turn this business over to Advi yeah. um, as strong as possible. And so that's honestly how I think about it. I spend virtually no time thinking about it, except when people ask me the question, I say, <laughs> I want to work. And that's about the, all, all the mind thought I give to it. And I know you're a man yeah. who goes to the gym or, uh, for example, making sure that you're keeping yourself mentally stimulated and physically stimulated. But are there, what's one lesson, what's one piece of advice you'd give if you were now having a mentee, which I'm sure you have many, but having had the joy of having a mentor yourself? Yeah, I would say two things. One, absolutely do something you're passionate about. Um, I think this concept that I wake up every excited to go do what I do every day just lets me do it at my best. I don't feel like I'm at work. I feel like I'm doing something I'm passionate about. And so you need to find something in your life or your career uh, and professional life that, that gets you excited to get up every day and go do it because you're going to spend so much of your time doing that. And then second, carve out some kind of routine or something that makes you feel good every day. For me, that's going to the gym. I, I just find that the days I go to the gym, and I try to go almost every day, so that one day a week perhaps I don't, I feel like I miss something. And it just helps me have a positive attitude. It helps me feel good mentally about my day. Um, it keeps me, uh, my thoughts clear. And that may not be the same for everybody. So there's something though, that may be just reading the paper in the morning over a cup of coffee, but find that routine. And no matter where you are, you could be in Singapore, you could be in Germany, you could be here in New York City, keep that routine as consistent as you possibly can. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.